حبيبي قريب هل سقامي تسمع يقابلني يوم المقفل مشفع Welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Harry Bastramajian. And I'm Maryam Kazmi. We're excited to be joined today by two esteemed guests. The first is our very own Usman Khan, Prince Alwarid bin Talal, Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society and Professor of African and African American Studies here at Harvard, to discuss his latest book, an edited volume entitled Islamic Scholarship in Africa, New Directions and Global Contexts. We're also joined by Dr. Ibrima Sal, Executive Director of Trust Africa and former Executive Secretary of the Council for the Development of Social Science Research in Africa, who wrote the conclusion of this volume and is joining us today from Senegal. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation. So, uh, Professor Khan, we will begin with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your background and what brought you to compile this specific volume on Islamic scholarship in Africa? I am a scholar of Islam in Africa, and I was appointed uh, at Harvard to the Al-Walid uh, Professorship of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society in Africa to contribute to develop the field of Islam in Africa and particularly its intellectual history. So in the last uh, several years, I have been working on this project and engaged in documenting this intellectual history. And my previous book, Beyond Timbuktu, an intellectual history of uh, Muslim West Africa uh, was a contribution to the field. And um, the reason why I convened uh, the conferences leading to uh, this edited volume is that, you know, we know the growth of literacy in Arabic in Sub-Saharan Africa was uh, not at all disconnected from that of other centers of Islamic learning elsewhere in the Muslim world. And as will be obvious to the readers of this volume, African scholars, or more precisely scholars from Sub-Saharan Africa, participated in the development of virtually every field of Islamic knowledge. Some of the essays features in this volume constitute major contributions to astronomy as in chapter two, political theory as in chapter five, philosophy chapter six, jurisprudence chapter seven. And uh, in addition, a glance at the curriculum in the writings of the scholars of Sub-Saharan Africa, including those who have never traveled beyond their homeland, shows that many of them were extremely learned and also engaged in the work of authors from all over the Muslim world, proving that they had long been integrated in the global network of intellectual exchange. But for most of the 20th century, this literary tradition had remained unknown to the Western world and scholarship outside a small circle of, uh, special, of specialists. And at the turn of the 21st century, Many commendable efforts have been made to document this tradition. Dozens of doctoral dissertations have been produced on Islamic scholarship in Africa, and they have documented the rise of clerical lineages in Sub-Saharan Africa, the role of these lineages in societal reform and state building from the 16th to the 19th century, and their intellectual uh, production. Despite this huge scholarly endeavor, however, 
Islamic scholarship in Black Africa had remained invisible in the larger field of Islamic studies and African studies, but also in major debates of the social sciences. But between 2004 and 2016, the publication of three volumes of essays gave significant visibility to the study of Islamic erudition in Africa. The first is uh, the transmission of learning in Muslim Africa, edited by Scott Rees. The second, the meanings of Timbuktu, edited by Shamil Jepi and Suleiman Bashir Jain. And the third, edited by Robert Loney, is Islamic Education in Africa, Writing Boards and Blackboards. But since the publications of these books, the field has grown considerably and attracted younger, talented scholars whose work is transforming not just the larger field of Islamic studies and African studies, but it also is beginning to inform debates in many disciplines in the social sciences. So dozens of articles and monographs have been produced, but not a recent state-of-the-art volume. So to take stock of these developments, I convene an international conference entitled Text, Knowledge, and Practice, the Meanings of uh, Scholarship in Muslim Africa at HDS in February 2017. And it brought 25 scholars from Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and the United States, and drawn from a variety of disciplines, including history, Islamic studies, anthropology, philosophy, and religious studies. These conference participants explored the literary cultures expressed in the Arabic language or in African languages written with the Arabic script. Like the pioneers in the field, participants refuted the notion that Muslim societies in Black Africa were essentially oral prior to the European colonial conquest at the turn of the 20th century. Their analysis of the movement of texts and ideas across and between West and North Africa through the Sahara and between East Africa and the Arabian Peninsula across the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean further confirmed that Muslim scholars south of the Sahara have never been isolated. On the contrary, they have long interacted and been integrated with other parts of the Muslim world. So in October 2017, I hosted a follow-up workshop at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard entitled New Directions in the Study of Islamic Scholarship in Africa. And it brought together a number of scholars uh, who attended uh, the first conference, but also others who joined us later, like uh, Dr. Ibrahim Asal, who wrote the conclusion. There, we, uh, in the second workshop, we addressed the achievement in the study of Islamic scholarship in Africa, the limitations in the emerging scholarship, and also charted new directions in the field. Dr. Saul, before we go on to the next question, would you like to also talk about your background and how you became involved with this volume? Yes, thank you. I mean, it's it's uh, for me the continuation of a conversation that began, uh, you know, many years ago with Usman in particular. Um, I was, uh, you know, we had a long engagement with with Codesria, the Social Science Council, um, promoting scholarship in Africa, independent scholarship in the social sciences and humanities. Uh, and at one uh, point, when I was still a young program officer. Uh, we, you know, Professor Khan and I knew each other when we were both doctoral students in Paris in the 80s and of the last century. And then, so when I found ourselves in Senegal, I was at Codesria. He was heading the Department of Political Science in Saint Louis, Gaston Berger University. So he invited me to teach a course. 
and so as you know in the course of their conversations while every time i went to teach this course in saint louis you know i you know we'd be talking about some of the research that he is doing on manuscripts uh you know in libraries in in senegal in particular but also in in the region in, and you know he was speaking passionately about these manuscripts that are in huge numbers and that are deteriorating very rapidly, expressing concern about what was happening. And then he, you know, had ordered a book, actually a hand list of manuscripts uh, in some libraries in Senegal that was published uh, in London. Uh, so going through that book and in our conversations, uh, it just occurred to me that there was a major, you know, shift, a gap between the kind of debates we were having in the social sciences around Cordesria uh, and these issues that he was raising about manuscripts and uh, debates related to Islam and Islamic scholars in, in Africa. Uh, and so uh, just through the conversation, we came to the conclusion that um, there was a need to connect these debates somehow. Right? Uh, and one way of doing that was to not only be concerned about preserving the manuscripts, was, but was to develop a project that would get the scholars to engage with the manuscripts in a big way and look into the content of the manuscripts and see what in the debates in these manuscripts, uh, you know, the Timbuktu manuscripts he mentioned and others, uh, would actually shed a new light in debates in the social sciences and in the study of Africa more generally. So, so this is how the conversation began and then it went on and uh, subsequently, uh, you know, uh, Professor Khan developed this uh, a document that was a kind of set of the art review of the literature on uh, you know on the subject that was later published as uh, you know, as a book titled Non-European uh, Intellectuals, and uh, uh, the French edition came out first, Intellectual Non-European, uh, and that you know was to serve as the basis for launching research networks on the on the subject so there was this uh, realization that we were aiming to serve the same african intellectual community and um, that it was very clear that you had uh, some working in different languages and in the uh, either, you know in different traditions intellectual traditions uh, but there was a major disconnect between broadly speaking what usman very you know um, appropriately called the Europhone and the non-Europhone uh, intellectuals and, and knowledges, borrowing, I think, an expression from uh, Apia, who you know, also used that in his book, In My Father's House. So this, this is the origin of the, of the connection, and then it went on all along. So when I had the chance to be at this conference at Harvard on his invitation, his kind invitation, I thought it was an excellent opportunity to, to see how the field has evolved, how the reflections had evolved. In the meantime, we had had, you know, all these developments that he mentioned, the publication of the English version of the book, Non-European Intellectuals, but also other works, including the Timbuktu manuscripts uh, and his own book, uh, Beyond, you know, Beyond Timbuktu came much later afterwards, yeah. So, so it is, uh, you know, that, that, that interest in making sure that, you know, we break the silos in African studies, we break the silos in this field of scholarship, we build a community of scholars that is, you know, inclusive of all these strands of scholarship on the continent, uh, and and uh, we don't remain in this uh, hierarchy of knowledge that is that has its origins in in, in colonial encounter basically, and that tended to consider uh, the anything related to Europe and the West as superior 
you know, to, to what is non-Western, what is indigenous, or what is supposed to be local. And, and so uh, this was an excellent opportunity to reconnect with the debate and continue this conversation with all the new research that was going on, uh, carried out by, you know, people who are at the cutting edge of all these problematics. This, this is basically how we got to the conference and then the book uh, uh, subsequently. Thank you. So it would be great to hear more about these knowledge divides that you've already started talking about. Um, and this is something that both of you also discuss in the book, these divides between the so-called indigenous African knowledge, the Arabo-Islamic tradition, and also the Western social sciences and humanities. So can you tell us a bit more about, about these knowledge divides and what are some of the challenges that they pose particularly for the study of Islam in Africa? And maybe Dr. Saul, we can start with you. Yes, first of all, I think it's, it's important to, to note that these divides are sort of global, right? Not, it's not only specific to this problem of connections between Europhone and non-Europhone. There's a whole volume of the World Social Science Report. Actually, the first issue of the World Social Science Report published by the International Social Science Council, or what it was then the International Social Science Council, affiliated to UNESCO and UNESCO, uh, you know, published in 2010, called the World Social Science Report on the theme of knowledge divides, just showing that there is a there are a lot of fractures, there are a lot of you know hierarchies and asymmetries in the knowledge production field, and that uh, you know there are that issues that sort of you know do, do not favor maybe the the sort of um, understanding of comprehensive understanding of a number of phenomena because of this segmentation because of these divides that are actually mirroring in a sense some of the divides that are out there in the world around us uh, that are of a north south nature that are of a different kind of nature um, but that reflect power dynamics at the global level you know and uh, that have historical roots that are also driven by phenomena that you know, is is global, is economic, is of different different kinds. And secondly, when it comes more specifically to the ones that I'm discussing in this book, uh, is that I think there are several of them. The the, the most obvious one is the one we which I've been talking about now, the divide between the Europhone uh, intellectuals and knowledges and the non-Europhone intellectuals and knowledges, uh, and that has its uh, roots in what happened you know, with the European Renaissance and the European Enlightenment and the spread of particular modes of learning, models of institutions, uh, you know, um, that are modern um, coming from coming from the West mainly, and they're spread around the world in ways that wasn't uh, respectful of the other kinds of knowledges that existed. On the contrary, it was a tendency to sort of dominate and sideline whatever else there was and raise the models in the West as the main models of reference. And, uh, uh, and to a certain extent, it was part of the civilizing mission you know, of colonialism at one point in time. Uh, so you have that major divide between uh, European institutions or institutions modeled on the European uh, kind of institutions of universities and scholarship. Uh, Africa had institutions that that are you know of university type uh, that are very very old you can still in the book there's a discussion of uh mention several mention of of, of at the azhar university in, in cairo there are other institutions in morocco and elsewhere that are actually among the oldest degree granting institutions in the world until today so these ones preceded the, the european type of institutions but they sort of lost their 
grounds, they lost, uh, you know, they were sidelined with the, with the spread of the European models. Uh, and, and, and so therefore there was a, a way in which uh, everything that's, you know, came from the West was taken to be the reference, uh, uh, the main, you know, models for reference in terms of knowledge. Science uh, was science as produced and practiced in the West. Uh, other knowledges were said to be non-scientific indigenous knowledge. Uh, they were superstitions or they were, uh, you, know, uh, you know, of a local type and they couldn't be systematized and so on and so forth. So that divide was there. Uh, and what we have seen with the work now that has been done is that actually that divide was uh, not an innocent sort of, so to say, divide. It was, it was part of the way in which these knowledges were ordered in a sense, uh, the way in which there was a hierarchy of languages as well. Uh, the European languages being the ones that were the main languages that, you know, uh, of, of both scholarship and of politics and of global relations and of commerce. You know, it's English and French and Portuguese and Spanish and so on. Uh, and the, the, the rest being languages that are said to be indigenous, local, vernacular, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's the same thing happened with religions as well. Uh, Islam was among the religions that had actually to be taken as targets for the civilizing mission. Uh, you know, Islam had to be confined to particular spaces if, it, if people in, in religion couldn't be converted to, to the main religions as well. So, so, so there's a whole set of movements that was there, and that big divide actually found its way into scholarship as well. Uh, and that this engagement between the European and non-European intellectuals has its roots in that particular sort of uh, context. Uh, and beyond that, then you have other, the fact that we also have African studies, which is part of area studies, and one of the defining features of area studies is the fragmentation and the segmentation. You know, the world is divided into regions and corners, and uh, you have Asia studies, African studies, uh, and then Middle Eastern studies. And Africa itself is divided in a way that wasn't very helpful, very artificial, in fact, that doesn't correspond to historical realities, because North Africa was detached from the rest of the continent. And the tendency is to, to look at the Middle East and North Africa, the MENA region, uh, and then Sub-Saharan Africa. And the Sahara was taken to be a barrier uh, across which nothing much was happening. Now that is actually obviously not uh, the, the corresponding to any kind of historical reality because what this book is showing, what the studies in this book are showing is the intensity of the relationships and the exchanges that were going on across the Sahara. Uh, scholars moved in both directions, uh, texts were moving, uh, ideas were circulating, Scholars from the south were moving towards the other side of the Sahara, teaching in institutions in Egypt and in Saudi Arabia, uh, participating actually in the shaping of what actually became major forces in the end. So, so that 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 whole reality, you know, was was kind of masked by some kind of artificial division uh, that, in a sense, became a kind of epistemological obstacle because it prevented the connection of these different kinds of knowledges and. The, the practice of scholarship across across the whole region. Uh, thirdly, you, you you do also have uh, uh, you know other kinds of issues because within Africa itself, you know there are subregions. You know some study in specializing in the study of the Horn of Africa, others in the Sahel, others in, or the study of particular languages. You have Manda Studies Association, you have a Swahili Studies Association. You have so so these studies didn't and this this kind of segmentation and fragmentation of the, the study of Africa, uh, in addition to the big divide between what was said to be modern social sciences and humanities and the 
the non-European or the indigenous and the local knowledge uh, and forms of scholarship that existed created the situation in which you know you couldn't get a proper and comprehensive understanding of a lot of phenomena. People were looking at their own realities with these concepts that Mudimbe appropriately called. Mudimbe is a Congolese scholar who taught for many years at Duke in the US. Uh, Mudimbe talked about the colonial library, you know, the whole set of concepts and paradigms that were used to study the rest of the world. Africa was an invention. You know, he, 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 he has written a book titled The Invention of Africa. A little bit like Edward Said wrote about Orientalism and the East and the Orient, how it was old-fashioned. Others have written about the invention of the Americas. Uh, and so I think that that has been an obstacle. And therefore, you couldn't possibly imagine Islamic studies flourishing the way it ought to be in a context like that one. Uh, and so the 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 what 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 you know institutions like Codestria tried to do from the beginning was to say, look, we need to make sure that these devices don't become too much of an an, an epistemological obstacle. Yeah, the, because in addition to all that, you also have the fact that uh, Africa itself is divided into fifty something states. Uh, speaking and using different languages uh, of, 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 of European languages being the languages of instruction and of scholarship, uh, leaving out populations that are very erudite and very knowledgeable using the Arabic language or use, working in an Ajami. Uh, and so there's a, there was a desire to overcome all this, to transcend all those barriers and bridge the divides. And, and I think this book has been a major contribution in that particular effort. You, Professor Khan, would you like to add to that? What I wanted to add to what uh, Ibrahim just said is that before the early 19th century, the Arabic language was the language of erudition, uh, you know, and, uh, and even administration in many of the Islamic polities that existed in Africa. The first school offering instruction in a European language, Furabay College, was created in the 1820s. At that time, it was an island in an ocean of uh, institutions of high learning using Arabic as a medium of instruction. But one century after, after the establishment of colonial rule and an educational system based on European languages, you know, this Arabo-Islamic intellectual tradition was relegated to the background. And of course, uh, uh, for a long time, it, uh, this, it remained unknown outside the circle of scholarships, but a lot of research has been done uh, recently to make it uh, to make it further known. And uh, if you allow me now to answer uh, the question, why the book is divided into four parts? When we hosted the workshop, uh, new directions in the study of Islamic scholarship in Africa at the Radcliffe Institute. The goal was to continue the conversation about Islamic erudition in Africa. What are the main achievements? What are the limitations? What new, uh, new directions need to be charted for the field? We know that Africans have contributed to Islamic knowledge and have traveled widely in the, in the Muslim world. But there was an implicit assumption that they were junior partners in their relationship with the Arabs or, or you know, that their contribution was not really 
major in the production of Islamic knowledge. That's one thing that the workshop challenged. And there are many contributions of in the volume of luminaries, people who uh, studied in Africa, but then they were they went to to teach in Mecca, uh, like Al Kathinawi, or people who made major contribution to philosophy, like in the Sokotoa Caliphate, uh, you know, the chapter six by Dantafa, and 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 many others. So we wanted to establish that Africans were not major, were not uh, junior partners, but they were equal partners, even with regard to the uh, Sufi orders like the Tijaniya and the Qadiriya. Most of those Sufi orders were believed to be born in the Arab world and then later exported to Africa. But the chapter by Zakir Wright and his introduction, you know, entitled The African Roots of the Islamic uh, Revival of the 18th Century, establishes that they have been engaged, African scholars, in conversation, uh, you know, uh, in the entire Muslim world. And they have been involved in articulating the major ingredients of the Tariqa uh, Muhammadiyah, which inspired other Sufi orders. In other words, to look at, you know, the spread of Sufi orders from North Africa to Sub-Saharan Africa as unidirectional would be very wrong. If we look at really what was happening and at the intellectual exchanges, one sees that they have no doubt made a major contribution. And that is something that we wanted to, uh, you know, to document in this workshop. Another thing that we wanted to document, and this leads me to the second part of the volume, textuality and orality. Okay, many scholars who were uh, active in the field of Islamic scholarship in Africa, they endeavored to prove that Africa uh, uh, was not an exclusively oral continent, a continent of orality, right? That it also had a written tradition. But in the process, they failed to really uh, clarify the relationship between textuality and orality, and also the importance of orality. Because orality and textuality have never been completely dissociated. And African scholars have used both uh, you know, modalities in order to, to produce poem, to produce knowledge, and to transmit knowledge. So we wanted to make sure that you know, uh, this uh, is clarified, and also, there are sophisticated knowledge that are transmitted without leaving traces. So the fact that uh, they, they have not written, left written traces doesn't mean that these knowledge haven't been uh, transmitted. And especially with regard to philosophical Sufism in the Sokoto Caliphate, Oludamini Obunaike you know, shows that uh, many of the scholars transmitted knowledge orally and because these were assumed to be very sensitive, sensitive knowledge, of course, uh, there are texts also on philosophy, but there were also major, uh, you know, very important knowledges that uh, did not leave written traces. So that's why we, 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 you know, we wanted to clarify the relationship between textuality and orality. The third is ajami, or writings of, um, African or other languages with the Arabic script by Muslim peoples of, of, of those regions. It was known that Ajami served to transmit knowledge, but many believed that it was just used in order to uh, transmit basic knowledge to people who did not know Arabic. But more recent works on Ajami writings prove that there is a sophisticated body 
of Ajami writings, of poetry. And there are three chapters in this volume on Ajami uh, dealing with that, showing that actually uh, Ajami did not just uh, serve to, to, to transmit basic knowledge, but also sophisticated knowledge. And uh, African scholars wrote both in Arabic and in Ajami. And I give the example of uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Yas uh, at the beginning of the, of the volume, saying that he taught uh, the exegesis of the Quran in Arabic, but also in Wolof. He taught it in Arabic too. His uh, Arab speaking disciples were coming to study with him, but he taught also in Wolof. And now we have the transcription of both of them. And by no means the exegesis in Arabic is more sophisticated than the other. So we wanted to also <clears throat> prove that there is no language hierarchy as Ibrahim just said, that African languages were as important as Arabic in this process of knowledge uh, transmission. Yeah, maybe we can delve more into some of these sections in the book. The first one is about history and movement and Islamic scholarship. So can you tell us a bit more about some of the networks that connected African Muslim scholars to scholars in the broader Muslim world? And Professor Khan, you wrote specifically about the role of pilgrimage. So can you tell us maybe a bit more about that? Sure. Uh, you know, before the erection of colonial boundaries, scholars circulated in widely in the Muslim world. They traveled freely. And as Ibrahim said, also books traveled freely. Many scholars from other parts of the Muslim world came to Africa. And the reason is that Africa was extremely wealthy. It was one of the world major producers of gold for centuries. And that's uh, you know one of the reasons of, of the attraction that many people would, would go there. But pilgrimage also was important. And the pilgrimage tradition in West Africa spans a period of a thousand years. We know, you know that for a thousand years, Africans have been making the pilgrimage to Mecca. Of course, the most uh, uh, famous such pilgrimage is that of King Mansa Musa of Mali, who uh, you know, traveled with the retinue of you know, thousands of peoples and, uh, and distributed, distributed gold lavishly, so much so that, you know, that, that, that the price of gold you know, fell. And this was documented by Arab scholars, but also by European uh, cartographers, you know, then uh, you know they used to uh, go to the pilgrimage to perform the pilgrimage and to engage in intellectual exchanges in the haramain with intellectuals coming from other parts of the world and also were going back home and bringing bringing books cairo was an important transit transit point and uh, the pre-colonial pilgrimage you know scholars were largely represented in that pilgrimage Unlike the current pilgrimage, where you go there, perform the pilgrimage, and go back home, the pilgrimage was also a way for them to search knowledge. Just like Ibn Battuta, he left his country, Morocco, to go to perform pilgrimage, but also to learn. So these people, they uh, were they engaged into intellectual in intellectual exchanges with other people from all over all over the world, and they brought back home books and ideas, and they taught them so that people in Africa were at the cutting edge at, at any uh, given time in history. For example, the scholar Asuyuti, Abdurrahman Suyuti of the 16th century, who is the author of the exegesis of the two Jalal, Tafsir Jalalain, his work was taught in Africa during his lifetime, not just Tafsir Jalalain, but also other works. You know. 
So pilgrimage played an important role. And I want to add also that in Al-Azhar, they were very well represented. There existed in the 18th century, 25 uh, residents of Muslim students, and three of them were residents of students from, from Sub-Saharan Africa. And the, the Maghrib had only one. And the first such uh, residence for Muslim students was created in the mid 13th century, which is the Riwaq al-Barnawi. Just to tell you that, you know, Africans have been for long involved in scholarly networks all, all over the Muslim world and participating, particip they have also been participating in intellectual exchanges. Thank you. Can you also tell us a bit more, you started talking about textuality versus orality. So can you tell us a bit more about some of these binaries that are commonly perpetua perpetuated about knowledge and its production in Africa and how the authors of this volume are challenging those perceptions? Sure. So uh, in the pre-modern period, one of the most reliable means of knowledge transmission, if not the most reliable, was oral transmission. A master teaching a text to students, you know, instead of uh, just students having, you know, ordering their books and reading on their own. So there are many texts that we call book and books and actually that were even not really books in the sense that we understand it today. Uh, let us take, for example, the Muatta of Imam Malik. These were uh, notes that students took from his lectures that he was giving. They took the notes and then, uh, and then you know, uh, it became Muatta. But you can see uh, variations of this manuscript, of this text. On one hand, because they were taught in over a long period of time, and Imam Malik himself has been changing the content of his teaching as time, as, as time went, that's one. And students also who took the notes, they may have taken different uh, notes or may, may have different, different, diff, different understandings. So uh, therefore, just to say that orality was very important in this uh, system, by no means was not, you know, uh, uh, was uh, dissociated from textuality. And, uh, and as I said, they were also important initiating knowledge that people didn't want to write in paper because they wanted to, or they, wanna, they, they would write part of it, but there are uh, other parts that they wouldn't write, but they will just transmit orally to students. And some of the poets also, I said, wrote, you know, they composed poetry in, writing, but some also just composing and, and we're sharing it orally, you know. So um, moving on to the part four of the volume uh, on Islamic uh, education, if, uh, and this is, uh, this question is for the, for the, the both of you, uh, what are some of the, the modes of Islamic uh, knowledge transmission and institutions? Uh, so thinking about sort of uh, formal versus informal knowledge transmission uh, and educate in, in as well as institutions modern versus traditional and as well as uh, sort of state you know state sponsored or government uh, sponsored schools versus you know madrasas that are religious endowments these uh, various modes of, of, of Islamic knowledge and transmission and their institutions and specifically what has been their role in contemporary, Sub-Saharan African society. I mean, you know, I, I think um, 
maybe Dr. Sal, perhaps you have uh, uh, some thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. If you allow me, just maybe just one one minute back to this point about orality that uh, Professor Khan was speaking about, and just just how the technologies, modern technologies, have helped in actually making that issue much more complex. Right. Uh, I think one of the the, the contributions, uh, you know, just shows how people are using the technology in in incredibly creative ways. Um, you know, moving from text to you know, to the um, you know oral oral orality and so on. So, that, so that's 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 just just one thing to add to the to the uh, to the point about orality. It's it's become much more complex in the sense that um, with the with the technologies now, people are doing incredible things with you know recordings, voice, and WhatsApp and Facebook and so on. Now, to come into the to the question about uh, modern versus traditional institutions, state schools and madrasas, I think this is the the so-called traditional institutions preceded the, the modern schools. Modern schools are a recent phenomenon in, in, the, in the context of Africa in, in particular, generalized with the, with the arrival of, with the colonial experience basically, with missions first and then the formal introduction of colonialism. I think that's that's what 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 happened, and then the modern institutions of learning and ways of uh, transmitting knowledge uh, were taken to be the the, the norms, right, and been, been pushed with state policies uh, promoting them vigorously. The the issue though now is that the situation is a lot more more complex. The there's an evolution of the so-called traditional uh, institutions as well, the madrasas. Have been modernized. I mean, there's a whole movement of modernizing the daras, as they call them, in, in in some parts of the continent, in Senegal in particular. But, but the madrasas, and there's an interesting chapter on the madrasas in, in Senegal in particular. So there's a there's an attempt to make them to regulate them further to make sure that they they they, they function along norms that are more and more similar to the ones that are found in 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 in, in, the, in the modern schools. Uh, and one sees that all across. I think uh, Professor Khan's book on the, you know, the Beyond Timbuktu shows that very clearly how, up to the university level, one sees a kind of rapprochement. The the institutions are evolving, and there's a kind of convergence, general trend towards convergence. Uh, part of this has to do with a lot of, I think, movements, including movements of advocacy for for changes. At, at one level, people, you know, protesting about the practices, some of the practices that are associated with traditional institutions including the, the fact that students of the traditional institutions in a number of instances are, to be, are found in the streets engaging in practices that are not supposed to be uh, practices that children going to school should be engaging, begging and so on. So that's, that's one thing. So there's, a, there's an attempt to, to modernize the traditional institutions as well. And I think the, it, it, we, this seems to be a trend uh, that, that, will, that will continue, I, I, I would say. And, and because it also goes with, with the with the systematization in terms of the, the, the curricula and in terms of the the you know the um the, the qualifications that are that are obtained in these institutions as a way in which you know certificates tend to be aligned with what exists in formal institutions, including in the Arab world in particular. Islamic education in in many states, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm thinking I'm an expert on the 
the Middle East. So I apologize um, about my lack of knowledge about West Africa. But I mean, you know, there there is this tension that exists in in other states, uh, other uh, uh, Muslim societies between, depending on the uh, the state. But you know, a tension does exist between these modes of education that exist, whether it's a state institution or, or a state-backed institution versus the what I guess we would call sort of traditional education, Islamic education. And there's, in fact, there's a there's even a chapter in this section uh, entitled, What Does Traditional Islamic Education Mean? And I guess what I, I'm curious about is how does what people might think of as a traditional edu Islamic education, how does that play a role in, in contemporary society, in 21st century uh, African Islamic society? I think it is indeed playing uh, an important role. It's uh, very important for many people. With colonialism, Islamic education was separated from so-called uh, education leading to, you know, to, to the award of degrees. So that, you know, many people train to become engineer or to become, you know, teacher in, in, in other fields, but then realized that they lack Islamic education and started to return to study with the, with, with, with the shiur, you know. And there are also other students who left the village to go to study in a modern school but who via Skype or, you know, are in contact with their sheikh and continue to take classes, you know, from, uh, you know, with the sheikh from, from their village, which means that the two now are, are really, uh, they, they are not separated. So-called traditional knowledge has been, and traditional Islamic knowledge has, is still very important and many, 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 many seek to acquire, you know, that knowledge. But if I may ask something about uh, this volume, part four was entitled Islamic education, but I think uh, we could have been more precise and say transformation of Islamic education, mm -hmm. because it's dealing with uh, modern schools. And uh, one uh, of the chapters is dealing with a new type of Islamic school created in response to the demands of Muslim uh, migrants based in the United States who wanted to send their kids to go and study Islam in Africa, but also, you know, to be prepared so that they can come back and, you know, work in the United States. So we have uh, in a country like Senegal, which is a French speaking country, we have now Islamic schools that are, you know, that offer education in Arabic, in English and, and French so that graduates from those schools could come back and join college in the United States so, uh, or, or, uh, and, and, and study here. So which means that it's being, uh, Islamic education is being radically transformed. New types of schools, you know, are, are, are emerging and also new universities, you know. In 1982, there was only one, you know, Islamic university in the modern sense of the world of the wood in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the University of Umudurman. But uh, now there are dozens of such universities that are granting degrees. And they are still different from the older you know, seminaries, you know. So which means that, uh, you know, Islamic education is uh, really being transformed in very, in very many fundamental ways. And, and traditional uh, Islamic knowledge remains still important 
and is still attracting people who, you know, graduated from other schools are professionals, but then who need, uh, you know, Islamic knowledge and then who return to school in order to, uh, to, to, to study with Sheikh in order to acquire that knowledge. Yeah, to maybe to, to just just to add the way the way in which there's a almost a professionalization of these Islamic schools and the and the new new types of daras that that are connected to I think the big shift is between the time when you had maybe a, a master and you know students surrounding the person and it done in the most informal of ways they go to the farms they fend for themselves they come back to the structuring of the whole system into schools with stages and people going through classes. And then graduating at a particular point with degrees, uh, and, uh, it, and now a deliberate attempt to make sure that uh, some of the schools are connected with agricultural work. That students leave the schools with some skills, you know, they, they having to do with agriculture in, in very very often, but also with other other skills, including language schools, as you as you rightly said, uh, Professor Khan. Um, some of them are bilingual to enable them to have greater opportunities, because I think one of the one of the the challenges have been for people who have not only gone through the Islamic schools in in uh, in, in Africa itself or in West Africa, but even those who went to study in the Arab world, the opportunities for getting employment in the formal sector were limited to maybe teaching. Uh, in, for, for a long time, there was a limitation as to what the possibilities were until uh, it became very clear that people could learn professions also. We are, we are not going to, to, the, to Egypt, for example, only to study uh, about Islam, but also to learn other things like to engage, you know, study journalism, study the professions and come back and, and, and work. Uh, so, so, so there's an attempt to professionalize the schools or to, to connect them to the environment and to prepare the, the students to be able to exercise professions. And I think that's uh, in a way uh, something that gets them to be closer in the way they function to the modern schools. Thank you. So the final section is called Ajami Knowledge Transmission and Spirituality. So can you tell us a bit about Ajami and what its role has been in Islamic scholarship in Africa? Okay. Ajami consists of using the Arabic script in order to uh, write uh, the languages of other non-Muslim, uh, other Muslim people, sorry. And uh, Ajami, you know, is widely used in the Muslim world. You know, it was used in, in you know, the Ottoman Empire until, you know, uh, the successor state, Turkey, you know, reformed the orthography of Turkish, you know, to, to use the Latin script. It was used in, in, in Iran, in India, in, in Spain. And uh, in Africa itself, there is attested usage of Ajami in 80 African languages. And in West Africa, only in 29 African languages there are texts in Ajami. So, which means that this is a, a very huge body of literature, which, uh, as I said earlier, did not just consist of, you know, uh, basic knowledge, uh, you know, written for an audience who didn't know Arabic but it was sophisticated knowledge and uh, the strength of muslim scholars compared to those who train in western languages is that they acquired arabic used arabic they had uh, you know a good mastery of arabic language without abandoning their own african languages whereas most of us who were trained in 
modern schools in Western languages, you know, the use of, you know, of African languages, speaking in African languages was even forbidden in those schools. So therefore, uh, we wanted to contribute, especially uh, in this section to the sophisticated Ajami writings by, uh, you know, African scholars. And most of them, you know, are uh, volumes of poetry. Uh, you are, you know, a text of poetry, you know, in Ajami. Helmi Sharawi is an Egyptian scholar, uh, very active in, very active in Kodesi, one of the founders, actually. Helmi Sharawi actually found texts, Ajami, you know, with Africans, <laughs> Africans written in, using Ajami, and Africans is the language of the, of the Boas in South Africa. So he, he doesn't tell us whether it was, you know, there were Muslims, Muslim Africans who were, were uh, writing using the Arabic script, writing the African language using the Arabic script or not. But, but the fact of the matter is he found texts, you know, Ajami texts in South Africa that, that were written using the, I mean, Africans written in, in the, using the Arabic script. Just, to, just to, to, to make the point, I mean, to support the point that you are making, and Professor Khan, about the, the extent to which Ajami is widespread on the, on the continent. And I think the, the, the maybe thing to add is that it wasn't only a discussion of religious issues. There are issues having to do with the law, with society, economy, and so on that are covered by the texts in Najami. It's, it's much broader than only the religious doctrines. I think that's the other probably the thing to add to, 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 the, to the points that you were raising. Indeed, indeed. So um, I guess to, to wrap us up here, um, what, is, uh, what is next in your research? And I guess maybe uh, a little bit more broadly to thinking, uh, you know, sort of uh, bird's eye view here. I mean, wh where, what new paths or avenues for research do you see for uh, Islamic studies in Africa? Okay, let me first uh, answer the question with regard to the work that we have been doing here at Harvard in the last several years. And the Al-Walid program has been sponsored. You know, I said that we organized the first two conferences. The first was uh, text knowledge and practice the meaning of scholarship in Muslim Africa. And the second one, new directions in the study of Islamic scholarship in Africa. And this volume is uh, the, you know, result from, is a product of these two first conferences, right? And I just want to add that it's not just published in English, but it's also simultaneously published in French as a, Erudition Islamic en Afrique, Nouvelle Piste de Recherche et Contexte Mondial. And it's also published in Africa, you know, in local paperback edition, so that it's, uh, you know, African can also re re read it. So we want this work to have really the, the greatest impact uh, possible, that, you know, in more than one language and also, in, also to be available in Africa. So the, as you remember, uh, you will remember, we also organized a third conference on West Africa in the Maghrib, uh, you know, the third Islam in Africa conference, and a fourth conference, Africa, Globalization, and the Muslim World. So select papers from these two conferences are coming out as a special issue of the journal Religion entitled uh, Africa, Globalization, and the Muslim World. And we will also have them translated into French and published in Africa so that they come you know, out in two languages, but also available uh, in Africa. 
For example, this volume costs $130. Does it make sense to produce a book about Africa that Africans will never be able to read? It doesn't make sense. So our, 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 our really endeavor was that it should be available in Africa also, paperback edition, 20 something dollars. And it's already available there, okay? Uh, I'm talking about, about the, the first volume. Now, the, uh, on, in April, we organized the fifth conference and all of them have been sponsor, uh, co-sponsored by the Al-Walid program entitled the Fayda Tijaniya in the 21st con- uh, the Fayda Tijaniya in the 21st century major articulation of global islam which is about a sufi order you know uh, which is uh, which has millions of followers all over the world and it was uh, well attended and and uh, we had you know very very good papers and uh, i am now in the process of editing them and they will also come out in French and English uh, in 2000, in, in 2023. So, so, and we continue uh, the work. We are now planning the six, uh, you know, Islam in Africa conference, which is uh, love poems for the prophet and Muslim saints in Africa and its diaspora composition, performance and reception. So this is a six uh, conference that we are planning uh, so we, we, we try to contribute to this field through uh, conferences, but also through lecture series, as you know, Harry, because uh, every year we bring, uh, you know, authors of new books uh, to present their works, as well as students who have almost completed um, their work. So the, the agenda is ready and will be shared with you soon. So uh, this is what we have been doing, and uh, we are still planning ahead, you know, uh, you know to make sure that you know, we, we, we continue to, you know, to be very uh, dynamic in the uh, field of Islamic studies and that to show that Islam in Africa is an important part of Islamic studies and uh, should be recognized as such. You know. For me, it has been a, 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 you know, a great, great, um, great experience. I mean, being in this, in this conference, I mean, it's not Islamic studies, not my main field of research, but being in the social sciences and humanities, I thought, it was a discovery to see actually how important it has been as a field. And, and one of the things we tried to do when I was at Kodesre was to, to bring it actually as a mainstream, you know, social science issue as well, to, to connect the, not only connect the fields, but make sure that it is taken up as a serious field of study by African scholars and not seen as something marginal or involving or of, of importance to only some, some scholars. And uh, secondly, I think the... The, the issues that have been raised in this book and the subsequent conferences, I point to the need for, I think, this Islam and Islamic scholars to, you know, exercise their minds on some of the issues that are really high on the global agenda today. So one of the conferences was on you know, global issues and Islam, as, as I explained. But I think there are a number of issues where there are responses that could be from Islam and Islamic studies talking about globalization, talking about climate change, uh, talk, you know, talking about the whole issue of inequality, talking about really, really serious contemporary issues that the whole world is trying to find answers for. And then there are, there are, there are values, there are ways in which I think uh, the whole issue of humanism and, and how uh, it needs to be rethought and brought back to the fore. We've seen it in the context of COVID uh, we are in which we are facing now, 
you know, how do we, what kind of responses to bring, what kind of values need to be, to be put, you know, put forward more. Uh, it's a time when I think the, the, the world needs responses. And I think there's a significant contribution that can come from this research. And we've seen some of it through the work that has been done already. So, so I, I think uh, I think there's a there's a huge potential for 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 more more to be done uh, and for greater contributions, which is why the, these works are together at Whitelist, and it's good that we have Professor Khan, who has not only the you know the taking the lead in in organizing the conferences and editing the volumes, but also engaging in the translation himself. Much of it is his own doing, actually taking the lead in in making sure that. The volumes are available in French, in particular, and 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 afford available in affordable formats on the African continent. Mm -hmm. So, thank you for the opportunity for being part of this conversation. Thank you, thank you for joining us. Um, this has been uh, very interesting, and and we are uh, excited to be part of uh, the, these past conferences and future ones as well. And uh, we look forward to uh, the the upcoming volumes. That was our conversation with Professor Usman Khan and Dr. Ibrima Sal on the new volume, Islamic Scholarship in Africa, New Directions and Global Contexts, edited by Professor Khan. We hope you'll check out the volume and keep an eye out for the next one on Africa, Globalization and the Muslim Worlds, which is scheduled for release in 2022. Please remember to subscribe and join us for future episodes of the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Maryam Kazmi. Thanks for listening. أنبياء منا له